Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. A patient called me out on my own bullshit. This beautiful woman, Flavi, 80 years young, I called her. She had stage four lung cancer, and she was this beautiful woman. She smoked like a chimney, but she was in the hospital. She was doing some chemo because she wanted to do it so she could see her grandkids graduate. She just was doing it as a favor to her family, she told me. I went into her hospital room, a stress ball tied in knots, and I said, hey, good morning, Flavi. How you doing this morning? She took one look at me. She looks me straight in the eye and goes, Hey, good morning, Dr. E. You know, forget about me for a second. Because you look like crap. What the hell's going on with you? Because how are you going to take care of anybody if you can't take care of yourself? Welcome back to this week's episode of At the End of the Tunnel. I am your host, Light Watkins, and this is your podcast about hope, both receiving hope and, when possible, giving hope. And speaking of giving hope, my guest this week is one of the most inspiring people I've ever interviewed. I first met Dr. Steven when I was hosting my Shine events, which were these live shows that featured people who were using their platform for social good. And someone recommended that we have Dr. Stephen come and speak about his work. So Dr. Stephen specializes in oncology and hematology. In other words, he's a cancer doctor and he works with patients at all stages of cancer. But in addition to that, Dr. Stephen has been a lifelong musician. And for years, he was conflicted about whether he should pursue music or medicine. And that internal friction, combined with the rigors of being in the business of private medical practice, caused Dr. Stephen to become very sick, and he was even diagnosed with cancer. And almost by happenstance, when he was at his lowest point mentally and physically, he figured out a way to blend his two passions, and he began composing songs for his cancer patients, which would incorporate lyrics that they would come up with together. And this not only helped to heal them, but it healed Dr. Stephen as well. And he became known as this bright light in the oncology community. He was the doctor who was doing things differently. In other words, he was finally being himself. And his work was featured on the Today Show. And his first book called Love is the Strongest Medicine just came out with Hay House. And it details his experience of first understanding that he was a different type of doctor and how he discovered the healing power of music. And he goes to some very touching experiences of working with some of his patients who helped him come into his own. 
And I have to say, this book brought me to tears a few times when I read it. So I'm honored to have Dr. Stephen on the podcast this week to share his story behind the story. I think you're going to find his passion for both music and connecting with his patients to be palpable, especially if you work in healthcare or if you or someone you know is going through cancer treatment. Or hell, if you're just a human being, this episode is going to give you a unique perspective on the healing process when you're working with a doctor who truly, truly sees you. Now, before we get into this conversation, I do have one ask to make. If you haven't yet left a rating or review for this podcast, it would mean the world to me if you took 10 seconds to just click on the name of the podcast, which on the Apple Podcast app is in purple, and then scroll down to the bottom, you'll see where it says ratings and reviews. Just tap the fifth star all the way on the right, and you've left a rating. And if you want to go the extra mile, type in a couple of lines about what you like about these conversations, and you've left a review. And I thank you so much for taking the time to do that so together we can help more people find these inspiring conversations. And so without further ado, let's dive into the backstory of the man behind the guitar, Dr. Steven Eisenberg. Dr. Steven, welcome to At the End of the Tunnel. So good to see you. I don't think I've Actually, no, I have had one other person on this podcast who actually experienced the near-death episode with the light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm excited to dive into your story. Thanks, Light. I am so privileged to be here. You're one of my favorite humans on the planet. So thanks for having me. I'm trying to remember how we actually connected or who we connected through, because I know you did a talk at The Shine a few years ago in Malibu. Do you yes. remember what, what, our, what our mutual connection was? Barbara. Was Barbara. it Barbara? It was Barbara. Okay. Shout out to Barbara. Shout out to Barbara. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I've been following your work. I was really inspired by everything you were doing back then. And now we get an opportunity to kind of go into the details of the backstory, which is my favorite thing in the world. I'm obsessed with backstories. And I like to start the conversation off talking about childhood. And I know you grew up in Philly. At least that's what it says in your book. You're a Philly kid. Yeah, that's right. So... Thinking back to little Steven or Stevie yeah. or whatever whatever they called you back then. <laughs> Stevie. <laughs> In your earliest childhood memories, was there a, a toy or an activity that you were obsessed with back when you were a kid in the, in the early, early 70s? It was my little cassette recorder. I, I used to make little radio shows. And back when I was a kid in the 70s, I was... Uh, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with Steve Martin. I love that that wild and crazy guy. And I would just I would make these silly radio shows on this cassette player. And there was one that I still have to this day. And and might tell you a little bit about my psyche. The <laughs> it was called Ivy the Spoiled Brat. And I made this show about this spoiled kid and he was rotten. And <laughs> in one episode he he slams the piano cover on his piano teacher's his fingers. He makes phony phone calls. He calls a pizza and has it delivered to another house. It was crazy. It was like my alter ego in a radio show. 
but it was it was nuts. I gotta we should we should link <laughs> we should link it to the to the podcast. When you were doing these shows that you were making up when you were a kid, what was that for you? Was it an escape? Or was it a way to showcase your talent for your friends or your parents? Did anybody listen to these shows? Nobody heard them until many years later. I think it was an escape. It was an outlet. Because as a kid, I was bullied. I had a lot of fear as a kid, a lot of fight or flight. Uh, going to school, I remember I had glasses, really big hair, super skinny. And I was very self-conscious. I would take my glasses off every morning, put them in the school bag so no one could see my glasses. And I think these shows became a escape or, or an outlet for some sort of expression. I mean, it was Ivy the Spoiled Brat. He was filled with anger. <laughs> it was funny. The show was funny. It was a comedy show, but it, <laughs> but I mean, there was, it was probably some unexpressed anger at the world for picking on me, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would always use humor as an escape or as, as a safety. If I can make them laugh, then I can bring them on my side and they won't, they won't come after me. So that was a big part of my childhood. I had to be the funny guy. I had to be, you know, and these shows were, was the outlet. And we had this game as a kid, we were all robots and each robot had a name and they each had a special talent. I was funny, the robot. And one kid was, one kid controlled all the robots named Todd Zeldin. But for some reason, I was, it was my, it was my mechanism. It was the way that I could bond and I could be your friend because I could make you laugh. But it was also a way of trying to escape being made fun of. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode.
What was your relationship with music back when you were a kid? Did you play the flutophone? Any instruments? <laughs> I played the recorder as a little kid, and <laughs> and we had a we had this little upright piano. But it was my father. It was my father. He he could play any song just from his ear. He could play anything. And the crazy thing is, is from a young age, he showed me that you could have both sides of the brain working at the same time. He went to art school, Philadelphia College of Art, and then later went to med school. So he showed me at this young age, he'd come home. I'd go to his office sometimes. I'd I'd see him with the patients. He might have me like help file some stuff. This is a little I was a little older, but I remember him coming home from work and getting in front of the piano and playing any song. It was a way for him to relax. So I saw this. I saw music as a way to unwind, music as a way to connect, and it connected us. And so from a very young age, I started writing little songs, little lyrics, little poems. And I had no idea what it would turn into, but again, it was an escape. It was it was a way of of expressing, of expression. So music for me was soothing. It was a way of connecting to my father, who was very busy, very busy as as a fa- family practice doctor. But we bonded through music and sports, Philadelphia sports. We'd watch Eagles, Phillies, Sixers. And we just loved it. And it was a way for us to come closer together. My dad has had his own struggles in life later that we can get into, but he lost his love for medicine many years later with HMOs coming in. His joy of medicine started to drain. And I always feared as a doctor, I don't want that to happen to me. And he didn't want that to happen to me. In fact, he may have encouraged me I think at one point he said, you know, you got to be really sure you want to do this because it's not everything it's cracked up to be. When you were a kid, did you look up to his profession in that way? Did you fantasize about one day becoming a doctor or really just being like your dad? I did. I'd go to his office. I'd see he did. He even did acupuncture. He took like the special acupuncture class in the 70s. So he's doing family practice. He's doing acupuncture. He was very integrative minded. And he didn't play, P- he didn't have a piano in the office or anything like that. But I did want to be like him because he, his patients loved him. My mom loved him. They later got divorced. And that's a whole other story. They split up when I was 30. And that's a whole other story. But he was very creative. And I did want to, he, he can play piano much better than me. That's probably why I chose guitar in the end, because I, I never practiced piano and I wasn't very good. So that's probably why I picked up his old guitar from the attic. It was a righty. I strung it left-handed for me. I'm a lefty. And I started playing guitar in med school. When I finally moved out, there was no piano. So I had this guitar. But I did want to be, I did want to be like my dad. I wanted to be a great doctor. I really did. But that, I, had a, I had this fork in the road before I went to med school, a big fork in the road, whether I was going to do it or not. What was the vibe like in your house? I know you had a little sister, your parents were together. And when I'm asking this question, what I'm referring to is, did you feel supported in whatever you were doing at the time? Were there any learnings or lessons that were echoed in the house from your parents that you remember? 
Yeah. Like, was there a work hard ethic, that kind of mm. thing, or express yourself? Definitely work hard. Definitely work hard. I mean, and I and I could see that. I could see it in my dad. You know, when the phone would ring, we'd be eating dinner, and the phone would ring. It would be his answering service. That damn answering service. He'd be like, "Oh, answering service." So there was this work hard, but there was also this underlying angst. I could tell, like, part of him didn't love it. It was upsetting to me. And many times, even as a child, you know, my parents, they did, they split up for a little bit. They got separated when I was maybe seven years old. So as a very young age, I remember having to be like, I need to fix things. I need to be a fixer. I need to try to get my parents happy with each other again. And, and that's not healthy as a child. You know, so I, I think I struggled with that. There was work hard. There was definitely freedom, self-expression, great friends around. But on the other half, there was, you know, there was the bullying. And so there was a lot of ignore the bullies. You're a great person. Be who you are. Ignore them. Ignore them. But part of me wishes that my dad took me to learn karate. <laughs> so I could I could defend myself. So I was like, you know, 40 pounds soaking wet. So it was like totally I was this little toothpick. And that and that was one of the band names later, the toothpicks. But <laughs> and even now, when I record music, for some reason, you're gonna laugh at this. On Spotify, my music's under skinny Philly Kid. <laughs> That's my band name, Skinny Philly Kid. So it never really escaped me, even though I'm not skinny anymore. I'm I'm always sort of that skinny Philly kid. And there was self, I mean, they were very supportive, very accepting, very great. And But again, I, I struggled internally with the Sunday night blues because I had to, I knew Monday morning's coming and I got to go. I was going to get, <laughs> you got to endure five days yeah. of, I was going to I was going to get picked on so my friend and I would talk Sunday night you having the Sunday night blues yeah me too and we would just talk it out but I always when I go back to my childhood I look at all those things as as things that really helped me through where I am now yeah I mean I've been through a lot of ups and downs and like Rocky I'm not saying I'm Rocky but like Rocky from Philly I had to keep picking myself up off the mat. And the biggest thing that, that, that really knocked me down when I was 13 was that horrible accident. Yeah. So you're out riding your bike one day. I'm assuming at 13, you're pretty proficient at riding bikes and looking both ways. But what happened? I was coming around a corner and I just didn't see this car. And I don't remember the car hitting me. I totally blanked out, which I think is God's way of, of protecting you. <laughs> I remember coming down and coming around the corner. And the next thing I know, I'm flat on the ground. I wake up. There's a whole team working on me. I must have been out for 15 minutes or something. But I mean, I wake up and the only thing I remember is an ambulance around me. The guy's working and puncture wound right tibia puncture wound right tibia cut the pants so they had to like 
cut open the leg to see the wound. I look over my left shoulder. My mother's there crying. I'm sort of in and out. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy. I mean, I, I, I just remember thinking, oh, man, my mom, my mom looks so sad. <laughs> I'm worried about her. She looks so sad and upset. She's crying. She's up there, left shoulder, over my head. And then in the ambulance, all this stuff, it was really bad. I, my whole face was ripped apart. My ear was hanging off. My pinky was was hanging off. My face was torn apart. And, I mean, the first thing they had to do was stabilize me because I had a, a major brain trauma. My head bashed through the windshield. I ended up rolling off the car onto the floor, onto the ground, the street. And that first night in the ICU, after they, you know, they sewed my face back together, they fixed my leg, had a huge puncture wound, bone popping through the skin, not to get too graphic. But that first night in the ICU, my brain was so swollen, I lost the respiratory drive. Stop breathing. That was it. That was it. And I saw your name. I saw light. I saw a a bright light that first night. I made a rhyme. That first night, I saw a bright light. I mean, I was 13. I didn't know what was going on. But all I remember is seeing it and then almost like a and then coming back. And there's a nurse up here, two nurses, one on the left, one on the right, saying, it's going to be okay now, Stevie. It's going to be okay. You're you're okay now. Keep breathing. It's okay. And so they brought me back. They brought me back from the brink. They brought me back from the brink. And that was the first time in my life that I got a second chance. There was, there's, there's others, but that was the real second chance, my light at the end of the tunnel. I got this second chance at 13. But, I, but the thing that happened after that was I couldn't speak. I couldn't speak. I had a s- expressive aphasia for quite some time. Talk about the effect that Dr. Kotsi had on you in the hospital when you were there for a month after the accident, because you mentioned that in your book as being sort of an influential moment for you. Yeah, my face was so torn apart, my ear hanging, dangling off my head, my left ear. My entire left side of my face was one big scar, and it took six or seven hours for him to to sew up all of the face wounds. So I remember looking up at him, coming in and out of consciousness. They didn't put me completely out because of the brain, the brain injury. So I was up. And I remember him injecting my face with all the lidocaine. And I just remember looking up at his eyes and his soothing voice. And he's saying, you're doing great. You're doing great. You're going to be okay. You're doing great. I'm so proud of you. And I could see the light, you know, his bright light, the surgical light, and his eyes peering out behind his mask. And he had this huge telescope thing on his head so he could see closer up what he was doing because it was so fine detail. And it was just so soothing. And he was just so kind and loving. There's no other word for it. He was loving. He was like this beautiful soul who was also an artist because now you can't hardly tell that my face was torn apart, but 
you could sure tell like <laughs> for that for a good year and that didn't let me tell you that didn't help with the girls and that <laughs> or didn't, the bullies <laughs> that didn't help with the girls the bullies my self-confidence i thought i was even uglier someone brought a card to the hospital not knowing how torn up my face was and it said like poor you and it had like a fake mirror on the inside of the card you look horrible but get better and i looked at my face in this card this mirror card all i saw was the scars and all the stitches and i was like frankensteinberg you know <laughs> that was <laughs> i was like stevie frankensteinberg i you know i was just a mess and then and then not being able to speak Ad can't speak on top of everything else. <laughs> Couldn't walk. I had to do physical therapy just to just to learn, you know, just how to learn how to walk. I had to learn how to speak again, which was really frustrating. Expressive aphasia is no joke. But your dad told you that he sat you down and he said, look, you, you not a lot of people get a second chance in life and you literally just got a second chance. How did that hit you? After I finally got the ability to to speak again, it but an int one little tidbit about that was the first thing that came out of my mouth that made any sense was the lyrics to Michael Jackson, Billie Jean. It was 1983, the accident, and they said, you know, sometimes music, a song, might come out and be a, light, a little clearer than trying to make sense of you know, saying a, a regular sentence. So my mom brought my boom box in with my thriller tape, which I knew every word to. This is a cassette tape, 1983. I knew every word, every lyric, every... Ooh, ah. So the first thing I said was, you know, in my crazy little 83 voice, Billie Jean is not my lover. Ah, she's just a like It was like the, the first thing that made any sense. And that was the first inkling where music really started to save me. And little did mm. I know how it would come to play later, but you're right. So after I'm out of the hospital, I'm on crutches. I'm getting around with the crutches. I can now speak in sentences. My dad took me out to the, in the back of our house and said, you know, they called us. He said, I want to tell you something, but I don't want it to freak you out too much. But, they went home for a few hours to get a little rest. They said they called us to come in immediately because you stopped breathing. And they thought maybe that was it for you. And we were really scared. You know, I thought I didn't want to get any calls that first night. And you got this second chance. You got this second chance at life. And I'm just proud of you. I love you. Don't forget about that you made it and you're here and you're going to get better. You're going to get better and better. Your face will heal up because I still was like, you know, Frankensteinberg. And at 13, all I remembered was just don't live with regret. For some reason, it was like, don't die with your music still in you. That was the Wayne Dyer line that because I was a Wayne Dyer. I still am. I'm a Wayne Dyer diehard. I'm a Wayne diehard and I'm a Wayne Dyer diehard. I just love him. I would listen to these tapes, you know, it would go between Thriller and Wayne Dyer tapes. He'd had those tape programs from Nightingale Conan. Remember those? So mm -hmm. I would, I'd go from Thriller and Purple Rain to like 
Wayne Dyer. And so don't die with your music still in you. That was like the line that changed my life in many ways because I always love music. I always love comedy, expression, laughter. Laughter was my, my coping mechanism, humor. But what did he mean by that? It meant take chances, no regrets. Back then it was if you like a girl, <laughs> ask her out, even though you look horrible and you've got the crazy hair and you're on crutches, you know, don't die with your music still in you. Don't die with regrets. You have to take chances in life. And these these were the things that sort of shaped my young teenage years. It was like I became almost like a daredevil in a way. And what inspired you to want to become a doctor yourself, go to medical school? At the end of high school and in college, I started really getting into the mind-body connection. I started getting into the mind-body connection. I was reading more, more dire books. I was reading some Deepak Chopra at the time. I was getting into the quantum physics that Deepak talks about that we're more empty space than we are solid matter. And I was like, I really like this. Could this be part of medicine? Could this be part of helping people, this mind-body connection? And then so I took neuroscience at school at Penn State, and I started looking. I wrote a paper on what's the neural pathway when you hear a piece of music and you're so moved and inspired by it that you get the chills and the goosebumps. Because I remember in, in school, I was listening to uh, Les Mis. You know Les Miserables, the show? Mm-hmm. I would listen to that tape, again, cassette tapes, ladies and gentlemen. They used to be these things you listen to music on. I would listen to it. I'd get the chills. I'd get the chills on certain songs, certain moments. I was so moved by it. And I knew something was happening in my body. The, this, something I was listening to was changing the physiology in my body. And I thought, mind-body medicine that's the way to go. There's got to be a link. And I think I could use this to help people. What about your dad? You mean, didn't you remember your dad not wanting that phone to ring and not being uninspired? And he was practicing a little bit of mind-body medicine as well. So, I mean, how did you come to terms with that? It was hard. It was hard. I, you know, part of it was, I said to myself, the only way I'm going to do this, <laughs> and it was really weird at the time, the only way I'm going to do this is if I can still <laughs> bring in some sort of creativity. And to me, that meant I still needed to do music and I still needed to have comedy in my life. And I know it sounds weird. Going to med school, it became this ultimatum. I was either going to not go at all and just move to New York and start to you know try to do comedy or play music or something like that. But I decided, I said to myself, is there a way to have it all? Is there a way to somehow meld these two worlds? 
And I, I think I was crazy at the time because med school's really hard and there wasn't a lot of time, but somehow I got the guitar and somehow I knew the only way I was going to make it. And I not, I didn't always make it light, but I said to myself, the only way I'm going to make it through is if somehow I can meld these two worlds of music and laughter and mind body and helping people. So this was the crossroads you were referring to earlier? This was the crossroads. This was the crossroads because I loved mind-body medicine. I loved Wayne and Deepak. I had them on one shoulder, but then I had Steve Martin and Andy Kaufman on the other shoulder and, and Michael and Prince. And it was this crazy crossroads where it was like, can you have it all? Can you try to combine these worlds in some way? And so I said to myself, shit, I'm going to try. Did you talk I'm, to your dad about it? I did. What did he I say? Did. He said, look, <laughs> you're not going to have a lot of time, but if you want to keep your creative side alive, you can. It's possible. He said, anything's possible in your life, but it's not going to be easy. And he said, if you're going to do this, you got to really want this. And so he he was being realistic with me because those long nights studying, those long all-nighters, yeah, I would break up the studying with with guitar and I would write I started to write songs in med school as a as a way to cope, as a way to de-stress, as a way to find myself again when you'd be so lost in all of the stress and the studying and all the hours I'd come home. I remember every day that I'd come home, the first thing I'd do is pick up the guitar. It was the first thing I'd do. And even med school, little little words and phrases would inspire lyrics and songs back in med school. And the one that stands out was this song called Sympathectomy. There's a, there's a procedure in neurology called a sympathectomy, where you cut the sympathetic nerves and, and it helps the pain. But I was like, sympathectomy, I like that. I don't need your sympathy. I'm getting, the, I don't need your sympathy. I'm getting a sympathectomy. I don't need your sympathy. No, no, no. And it was this idea that I was trying to combine the two worlds. And yeah, I would go to the Grape Street Pub in Maniunk, Philly. I'd, I'd play little open mics. And it was this trying to combine the two worlds. It was trying to combine the two worlds. And, and at the very end of med school, towards the end of, actually, the end of residency, I took all those songs I, rec- I wrote in med school and I, create, and I made an album. I recorded an album down the street where I lived in Philly. There was a recording studio. I could send you the, the, the very first album. Of all those, the, it's like 15 songs and it's all about getting dumped and, and girls it's all about relationships and getting dumped and struggling to find my way in philly but it was this it was the way it, the music saved me in many ways it kept my inspiration going and that mind body connection going through med school there was a doctor that you mentioned in your book dr fliegelman and i think when the layperson thinks about doctors, particularly in Western medicine, we think about them as sort of cold and calculating and, you know, bottom line type of people. 
And he seemed to be the opposite of all of that. And he talked about his 10 C's. We don't have to get into all of them, but can you just talk a little bit about what he was referring to with those 10 C's and and why? He was like a beacon of compassion. He was amazing. Gray beard, very pointed eyes, just very serious when he walked in the room the first day during the white coat ceremony. They give you these little white coats and you stand up and you take the Hippocratic oath. But he came in and he pointed towards the door of the auditorium and he said, for all of you here today who do not have compassion in your hearts, there, my friends, is the door. And he pointed to the door. And I was like, I love this guy. I love him. And and then he went over his 10 C's, which were compassion, connection, competence, creativity, contact. And he went over every one and how you had to keep these in the front of your mind throughout everything we were doing. Because again, it was like what my dad said, this is not going to be easy. But, but those 10 C's, I wrote them down and I plastered them on my wall in my Philadelphia, my little Philly apartment. And I would look at them every time I was studying for something it's like, why, why am I learning you know, the names of a hundred drugs right now that I'll probably never use because of the 10 C's, because of the 10 C's, remember the 10 C's, remember the 10 C's. And it kept me going. And he was an OBGYN. He was, he was towards the end of his career when he came in and did that initial talk. But I remember doing my rotation with him and the patients just loved him. They called him Uncle Manny too. He was <laughs> Uncle Manny for everybody. And I remember giving him a big hug at graduation and just telling him that I loved him. And I wrote a school show. I was the director of the school show and I put him in a skit where, and his part of the skit was he came in and he comes and, and, and he saves PCOM from an alien invasion. And he's like the, he's the hero of the skit, but he did it. He acted. He was so great. And we had this great bonding moment. And I was so blessed to receive, like they created an award called the Manny Flegelman award. And it was a compassion award. And, Somehow I was the first recipient of that. And so that is my biggest award I've ever received in medicine. I'll always cherish that because it's Uncle Manny. It was from his heart. His family made this little award for his name. You were also, as you mentioned, playing in cafes. You went down and auditioned for rent at one point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you were I, really, you're really like walking the line between do I want to be a full-time musician who <laughs> practices medicine on the side, or do I want to be a doctor who plays a little bit of music on the side? It's true. It's true. I I don't know what I was doing. I was nuts. Again, it was that no, don't have any regrets. So when I got, I don't, I, there was no internet at the time. I don't know how I found out about this, but it was like open call auditions for rent. So <laughs> after the morning lecture at, at med school, I jump in the car. I drive up to New York City. My guitar's in the back seat. I'm like, I got to try. It's my favorite show. I'm in love with the show. It was like the new, it was my new Les Mis. I'm getting chills from the songs. So I wait in line. There's a line, or like a line around two city blocks in New York City. 
I'm talking to all these professional actors and Broadway stars. I'm like, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm doing Amazing Grace. What are you going to do? Like, I was going to do the first song from Rent. (laughs) And it was nuts. So it's like three hours in line. I go in. They're like, okay, please state your name and and what you're going to do for us today. I didn't say I'm a I'm a med student. I'm like, hey, I'm Steve, whatever. And I and I play it. I play, you know, the first song is you know, November 24th, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time from here on in. I blah, blah, blah. So I'm playing that on my and on the guitar. And, you know, they were like grooving a little. But then they're like, thank you very much. We'll be in touch. <laughs> I never heard from the rent producers. But I did it and I felt good because I did it. I took that chance. And yes, I was walking this line between I'm writing the school show. I'm performing at little pubs, you know, cover songs and original here and there. I'm writing songs, but I still thought, okay, this is what you said you were going to do. You're going to try and combine these two worlds, creativity and mind body medicine creativity and then is there a link is there a link can you find the light and the link between these two worlds where you could help people heal somehow all the stuff you're learning all these things you're doing can these things help the doctor patient relationship can these things help people heal yeah you can get chills from a song but how does that translate into like your brain feels better how can you make this link and make it work? That was now the question. Talk about the story behind the ovation legend, because that cost you a significant amount of your savings at the time. And you still, you know, were kind of struggling through everything, but you somehow justified spending all this money on this beautiful guitar. Yeah. I mean, I was, st- I still had that reverse strung 1950 old acoustic guitar that I found in the attic for so long. And as I started playing more and more, I was like, I got to upgrade this thing. I got to upgrade this thing. So I didn't know what, what this music store had, but I, I rode down to, to this music store on Lancaster Avenue in Philly. And I walk in, I'm looking around for a left-handed guitar and I'm asking him, hey, you guys have any lefties? Because it's hard to find a lefty guitar. Many stores don't even carry one. And I walk around this corner. And it was like, <laughs> again, it was like light shining in from heaven down on this guitar. It was like, oh. <laughs> and it was like, it, it was sitting there on the ground in this beautiful guitar case. And it was this bright cherry red color. And it was like. This is the one lefty we have in the store. And the literally the light was shining through the door, through the glass on this guitar. And I was like, oh my God, look at that. Look at her. She's beautiful. Oh my God. And then they're like, it's an ovation. It's called an ovation legend. And I look at them like, how much? They're like 800 bucks. And at the time, that was like everything because, you know, you're not getting paid. You're not getting paid. So I took everything I had in my bank account and I said, I got to do it. This guitar is here. 
it it was for me. This is just looking at me. It was like the angels that were singing down, and it's I so. I just went for it. I went again, no regrets. I had to have it. And I still have that same guitar and I never bought another guitar. That is still the only acoustic guitar I've ever bought. And I still have it to this day and it's got cracks in it now, but I still play it. It's still on the album. It's on the new album, the skinny Philly kid album. And so it was one of those moments. It was one of those moments. I just, I still, I still adore that thing. I still adore that thing. We're going to cut to now. You're finished medical school. You're working as a resident and you're now having real world patient experience. You mentioned several patients in the book. William taught you never to make assumptions. Tracy, you taught to meditate. Are there any stories related to the guitar that you would like to share and the first time you kind of broke it out and maybe played a song for any of the early patients that kind of gave you chills in in (laughs) terms of of how they responded to you bringing that into the medical space it all came down to this again it was a crossroads it was charles this beautiful guy charles a piano teacher he was the number one piano teacher in all of Carlsbad, California. And he had metastatic prostate cancer. He came in and we talked about music. After we went through the medical stuff, the rest of the visit was talking about music. Because here he was, he was, he had a successful act in Vegas where he played piano and he did comedy. He did like a comedy musical act. His stage name was Chucky, Chucky Showalter. And he was this, he was just this beautiful soul. And he was teaching kids how to play piano at his second phase of his career. After one of his audience members died in a drunk driving accident, he decided, I can't be part of this world anymore. I'm going to get into teaching. And so he taught people. And one day he brings in the song for me (laughs) called The Dirtiest Song Ever Written. He gives me this thing and we read these lyrics together and we're laughing and we're just talking about how music changes lives. And at the time, I was debating whether to start writing original songs for patients. Up until that point, I'd brought out the guitar into the chemo room a few times and just had done some spontaneous little Adam Sandler-esque little funny bits like... Hey, Edith, tell me about you. You know, what do you have at home? She's like, I've got 12 cats and I've got six dogs. So there would be a song about Edith and her. Edith's got six dogs and she's got six cats. Oh, Edith. And it would be like a little funny ditty about Edith. And she'd laugh and she'd clap along. And it was a funny distraction. And people said they felt like they were a little, you know, a little cafe or something. And it was fun. But then, Charles, Chucky, it was he. I said, Charles, I want to, I'm thinking about doing this thing where we write a song together. And I want you to be the first person because you know the healing power of music. You've experienced it. It's your life. And he said, it would be an honor. And so we started asking him very similar to how, you're, how we're having this talk today. I started asking him about his life, his childhood his first band called the spats. And he told me a story where they opened for the Rolling Stones in the sixties. 
And so all of these, all of the things that we were talking about, what he loves, how he met his wife, how, what he was like as a child, how he had the act in Vegas, these became the lyrics. These became the lyrics. What moves him, what touches him, what inspires him became the lyrics to his song. And after that, he started getting worse, unfortunately. He started to go downhill. As I was putting the finishing touches on the song, he's now on hospice. He was bedridden. He couldn't leave his home. So I called him and I said, I finished the song and I want to come over and play it for you and Ellie, his wife. That was the first time I ever went over to a patient's home. It was the first official original song. I went over to his home. He had the bed. He had the hospital bed in the living room. And I went in there and I played it for him and Ellie. It was called Teaching Me. And it takes you through his life of going from performer to teacher to then how he was teaching me mm. about the beauty of music and the healing power of music. And so I played it for him. He's crying. Him and Ellie are hugging. And he said, you get me. You get me at such a deep level. I feel this deep sense of validation, of peace, knowing that this will live on, that these lyrics will always be here. And then we just hugged it out. And that was the first time it ever happened. And then later, after he passed away, I played it one more time in front of people at his memorial service. All his piano students were there. They played their favorite song they taught him. And his wife graciously, so beautifully asked me to play his song at his memorial service at someone's home. And it was then that I felt, I can't stop doing this. I mean, this is, this was maybe the thing that I was looking for all along. This was somehow bridging those two worlds when Chuck and Ellie and we played it and the piano students and, and cause I felt him in the room. Everyone felt his presence in the room through these simple words, through these simple lyrics. And there was healing in that room. There was healing. There was healing of the grief. You know, people, of course you feel your grief, but there was also a, a deep sense of this is who he was and we love him and we honor him. And this is, this was the first time it happened, Like This was the first time it happened, and I knew I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop it. It was maybe the thing that was going to be the answer. In the background, you're getting sick. You're falling under the pressure and the stress of private practice. So can you just talk That's a true. little bit about the business of oncology as it relates to someone like you, who's kind of like this patch Adams in the making, <laughs> 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 but you got to yeah. you know, get clients and, you know, you got to make, make sure that people are referring people yeah. to you and do all the things. So how, how, how is that working out with the background with I your own personal yeah, health? I, well, it wasn't until I started writing that those songs that I started to feel a little bit better. But at the before I before those songs came on, I was heading downhill. I moved across the country to join this very successful practice, and I had no idea what it would take, what it takes to make it, quote unquote, in private practice. You're not prepared for that in fellowship at Georgetown. They don't teach you. This is how you build a practice. And, and even when I joined the practice, there wasn't an instruction manual. 
It was just go out there, get your name out there, get lots of patience, be a go-getter, win, win, build, build, and outperform everyone else. So you get all the patience. And as I'm trying to do this, my guitar is gathering dust in the corner. There's no time. Forget songwriting. Forget anything creative. I had to learn how to build a practice and make sure I got my billings correct and fill up my schedule and make sure everyone was on the best treatment and be number one and for you know make sure that you covered your expenses. And my heart was sinking. I mean, yeah, I mean, I chose this. I chose private practice because I thought it would provide me some freedom and I could do it my way. I could do it, you know, if if I'm not like, you know, being analyzed by every academia person in Georgetown, I can be a little more freer to write songs and be funny and be who I want to be as an oncologist. Well, F that. I was, I was, it was being drained out of me. The light was dimming light and I was just slowly fading and I got sick. The stress, stress takes everything you experience and worsens it by a hundredfold. So I'm not sleeping. And of course, now I'm stressed. I'm not sleeping more. I'm getting pain in my muscles. Fibro. Now that's worse. I'm getting irritable bowel. I'm not eating right. My gut flora is all out of balance because of the stress. I'm getting <laughs> prostatitis. It, it hurts when I pee. What the hell's going on with me? I was a mess and I, was, I had a long way to go from mess to success. I had no clue what was happening to me until that fateful day in the hospital when a patient called me out on my own bullshit. A patient called me out on my own bullshit. This beautiful woman, Flavi, 80 years young, I called her. She had stage four lung cancer, and she was this beautiful woman. She smoked like a chimney, but she was in the hospital. She had, was doing some chemo because she, her, she wanted to do it so she could see her grandkids graduate. She just was doing it as a favor to her family, she told me. I went into her hospital room, a stress ball tied in knots, and I said, hey, good morning, Flavi. How you doing this morning? She took one look at me. She looks me straight in the eye and goes, hey, good morning, Dr. E. Forget about me for a second. Because you look like crap. What the hell's going on with you? How are you going to take care of anybody if you can't take care of yourself? And she could see right through me. I don't know what it was. My Maybe I looked pale or something. I don't know what it was, but she saw right through me. And I lied to her. I said, Flavi, I'm, don't worry about me. I'm fine. That's what I said to her. I'm fine. And little did I know back then, fine meant frustrated, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. I was not <laughs> fine. I was fine in those words only, Light. She called me out in the hospital room. And it was nuts because she was right. I wasn't taking care of myself. I lost all ideas of all the concepts of self-compassion and forgiving myself and, and taking care of myself and being creative. That whole idea of songs of doing it, it, it wasn't there yet. 
that came after the essay contest, right? You did yes. the essay contest. The essay contest was very soon after Flavi called me out. Flavi was the first step in starting to self-heal. And right near the same time Flavi called me out, my immune system was so low, I had cancer. I developed an aggressive skin cancer over my over my left chest, right over my heart of all places, right? Right over my heart. Aggressive skin cancer. I had to have major surgery to cut it all out. It's because I'd lost who I was. I didn't know who I was anymore. I was a trying to make it. I was the numbers were getting a little better. I was I was doing what I was supposed to do as a young oncologist trying to make it, but I I was slowly dying inside, you could say. This was like the second time I was I thought I was on a my on a road to to not just not doing well. Mm-hmm. I'm in the ER with a major I thought I was having a stroke. It was an atypical migraine. I thought I was having a stroke as a young oncologist. It was the stress. And it was awful. It was awful. And it was songs. And it was the essay contest. And it was Flavi asking me to have a dance in her hospital room. She said, listen, you got you to gotta stop the stress. And she, she brings me over. She gives me a little hug. And we do this little dance. She says, just have a dance with me. She was a dancer. So we're, we have the, we're having this little impromptu slow dance in her hospital room. Mm-hmm. And from my lips to God's ears, a little bit of stress in that moment. I could feel a little light, a little light at the end of the tunnel, a little opening, a teeny little bit of an opening that she's right. What the hell are you doing, man? You're killing yourself to make it. And you're losing yourself trying to make it. And then came the essay contest. Which you won. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote an essay about how Peter Himmelman's music has changed my life. And it was all about his song, Mission of My Soul. Because I'd listened to that song, Mission of My Soul, back in Philly, back in the hard days of internship. I still had that ideas. I still had all of my bright-eyed, bushy-tail ideas of oncology and make and, and bringing creativity. And so I won the essay. It was called Mission of My Medicine. Little did Peter know that my mission of my medicine was struggling. That's why I wrote the damn essay, to remind myself who I was. Little did he know that his song to me, the winner of the essay contest, was Peter Writes You a Song. So Peter wrote me a song all about my mission, which was to bring <laughs> laughter and music and love and light, you, light, and many times that light is through meditation. We'll meditate together in a room, but that comes later. And I heard this song he wrote for me, and I started to cry. It's like all of the pent-up emotions of losing myself, of all the stress of losing who I was. Of To me, I was a loser. Here you are, this supposedly new, successful oncologist. And I just, I had no idea who I was anymore. And I just lost it. And I started to cry because here is a song telling me who I really was, who I, who I had forgotten, who I had let die, so to speak. 
And the song sort of shocked me a little bit back into the world of the living. No longer was I going to be a zombie doctor walking from room to room, just getting through it, going through the motions of what it looks like to be a successful new oncologist building a practice, having to beat out everyone. I said, F that. Yeah, I still have to be in the world of oncology, but I'm not going to lose my life doing it. And that's a real thing. Just as an aside, one out of every two doctors has symptoms of burnout and more doctors kill themselves than in the average population. Suicide amongst family practice, internal medicine, ER doctors is 1.6 times the national average. Anyway, I wasn't thinking about killing myself, but I feel like I was dying inside. And it was that song and it was flabby that changed the course of my life. And then that initial song that I actually wrote for Charles and went and played for him. And at that same time, I started doing meditation. The meditation that you teach, I started doing meditation around that time. And that had a huge, huge effect on all of those symptoms. They started to dissipate. I could sleep. I could go to the bathroom without pain. I could be focused more. The fog was lifting. The brain fog. All of these symptoms started to go away. I had to practice my own medicine. I had to get in, really go deep into my own mind-body medicine and my own self-expression that I was just letting collect dust on the shelf. Those two things combined, yoga, meditation, three things, yoga, meditation, and bringing the guitar into the damn office. <laughs> Those things cleared up all my, my symptoms. And it was miraculous. I thought I was going to have this stuff forever. Migraines, irritable bowel, all of it. My quality of life was crap, like Flavi said. Flavi called me on all my BS and she shocked me into life. And I say she gave me CPR. She gave me CPR. And in the book, CPR means compassion, presence, and resilience. She showed me compassion. She had a few months left to live. And she showed me true compassion. How are you going to take care of any of us if you can't take care of yourself? She yelled at me. She called me out. She showed me true presence. She looked at me straight in the eyes. She gave me her full presence. And all I could think was, oh, I got to rush out of here. I got to rush and do the notes. I got to get back to the office. So, you know, I, I don't, I'm not late and don't get bad reviews. All that bullshit. And then she, because of who she was, her compassion and her presence, she showed me what true resilience was. She or she was dying, but she was so resilient in that moment. She cared about me more than her own visit, that hospital visit that day. She's like, ah, I'm getting the antibiotics. Don't worry about me. I'll get out of here. Let's talk about you. It was unbelievable light. You also mentioned a part in the book where you brought the guitar into the chemo room and you said you were feeling a little vulnerable <laughs> at the idea of playing. 
and you looked around and you realized you were the least vulnerable person in the whole room because everybody else was in there receiving chemo. <laughs> and probably that's the last place they ever wanted to be. The and last that gave place. you that gave you the courage to go ahead and put yourself out there to yeah, help people. I mean, yeah, I thought it was I thought I was gonna be getting a lot of looks and I thought my partners would think I was weird for bringing a guitar in. I thought that it was just who the hell does this, right? I got to be the, I got to continue. I have to keep this mask. I have to keep this mask of professionalism. A doctor doesn't do that. An oncologist doesn't go in and bring the guitar into the chemo room. You don't learn that in fellowship. You can't go out of the bounds of the normal doctor patient relationship. But then you're right. I looked around and I said, no, I have to do this. I have to do this because of everything we've been talking about. I can't not express myself. And it was, it was really about being vulnerable. And <laughs> how vulnerable are my poor patients? They walk in at their most vulnerable time. They've just been given this horrible diagnosis. They're in a post-traumatic stress experience. When you hear the C word, the cancer word, your body goes in shuts down. You go into such a fight or flight that my whole job now becomes taking the vicious cycle and try to reverse it to post-traumatic growth or post-traumatic wisdom, where now you can come on the other side of it and you can use this whole experience as a tipping point, if you will, to say, I'm going to turn my life around. And many patients, they get through the chemo, they get through the treatments. Their life is now a whole other possibility. They have a second chance. Hmm. And for my patients who are stage four and they're not going to be cured, they can still have a second chance because you can still heal your life even if you cannot cure the cancer. You can heal relationships. You can heal the trauma. You can heal. You haven't talked to your sister in 20 years. You can heal those things and you can die with beauty and dignity, and as I say, with light and love in your heart. And if I bring that to somebody, that's the most beautiful thing you can do as an oncologist as well. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book. You used this wonderful illustration of, you know, when you're at your blackest moment, the darkest, the dark sky at night reveals the most beautiful, brilliant constellations. And those constellations are those healed relationships or the connections that get forged as a result of this whole experience for not just you, but everyone that you're connected with. I thought that was wonderful. Thanks. I mean, it's, it's in those darkest moments. When we do the songwriting session, some mm -hmm. people are at their very lowest. And it's like what you're doing right now when you when we when we're asking these deep questions they're connecting to that deepest part of themselves and and I'm always just trying to nudge someone back to their highest self and mm -hmm. it's a reminder the song is nothing more than a nudge and a reminder that they are this beautiful soul who's going through an experience of cancer they are not a cancer patient period no no no, they are a beautiful soul going through a cancer experience. And if I can lessen the load a little bit, like I say, if I can make 
if I can make cancer suck a little bit less for you, then I've done my job. So walk us through the process. Let's say someone comes to see you. They've been diagnosed. How how does it end up with the song? Well, some people, believe it or not, nowadays come in and go, I found you because I saw that Today Show thing, and I think I really like your bedside manner. And don't forget, we're going to have to do a song. They come in requests. <laughs> I'm getting requests when they come in sometimes. But otherwise, other times, it just happens more organically. So we're talking. I'm getting to know you. I'm talking about, you know, here's, okay, here's what you have. You've got stage three breast cancer. Here's what we need to do. You've had your lumpectomy. We're going to do this oncotype. We're going to look at the genes of the tumor, see if you need chemo. If you need chemo, it's going to give you a higher cure rate. And we get through all of the medical stuff. And then once the medical stuff's done, we start to talk a little. We start to talk. Well, what do you do? You know, what are you going to do when you leave here? You know, I got a young kid and we go to this little music class and then we start talking. Oh, you like music? What's your favorite song? And she'll, you know, oh, I love Barry Manilow, Copacabana. So then I'll go on Spotify. I'll put on, (laughs) I'll bring up Barry Manilow and we'll listen to it together. Because I really think when you listen to something together, when you have Mm. the shared experience, now you got brain, you got your brain chemistry firing on all cylinders. You've got bonding chemicals. You're, you're starting to bond as doctor and patient. And then maybe the second or third visit, I say, I do this thing where I write songs for patients. And I think it'd be great for us to do one. And if they're into it, then we, we set up a time on the phone and we do the songwriting session. Not, not too different than, than what this is looking like. Your amazing podcast. We, we try to go deep. Now, I don't. it's maybe a half hour to 40 minutes on the phone and I'm taking notes. I'm right. I'm writing wildly as we talk little ideas, right? Yeah. Right. Off the clock. This is not, (laughs) I'm not billing them for medical visit. (laughs) This is off the clock. After all the patients are seen before I go home, we do a little songwriting session and then I take in the notes, but it brings me so much joy because I say my patients are my greatest muse because they're like, fighting for their life. And so if this song brings 1% more joy than yesterday, that's good. So I, I've, we're finished. I have a page or two full of notes and I say, thanks. Well, I'll let you know when it's done. And so over the next week or so, little ideas come in, little ideas. Like they might've said, you know, I grew up in Michigan by the lake and we would take this robo out. So it's like, Shirley rowed her boat ashore and her soul is asking for more. Like I'm just, I'm getting these ideas coming in as from her song. And then there's a tune that comes with it. Shirley's riding her boat ashore. Little did she know she's getting more. And, and so then I figure out the chords and after a week or two, there's a song there and either I'll play for her maybe over the phone or I'll play it. Maybe if I have the guitar in the office when she's in, I'll play it or we'll schedule a time to go do a little celebration of life. Like when she finishes her last chemo, we'll go and do a little celebration. Shirley will invite like her favorite people over and she'll have a little cake or something and we'll do a little song. And it's a little moment. It's a little moment of celebration because 
I like this idea of eulogizing people while they're still alive. Don't tell someone what you love about them only when they're dead. So the songs are about what we all love about you while you're here. You know, when you hear everything that everyone loves about you in a two-minute little song, it's hard to go wrong. And it is vulnerable. They feel vulnerable. I feel vulnerable playing it. But from vulnerability comes love. And perfectionism is, is the enemy of creativity. It just stamps it out. So the songs aren't perfect. My voice isn't perfect. But they don't give a crap. They just love that it's a song about them, that their doctor's playing for them, that they co-wrote. They're mm. the co-writer. I'm not just doing it. They wrote it. They wrote it with me. And then the li- I give them little framed lyrics, and it's just fun. It's just... And every time I do it, I feel a little bit of my soul coming back more to life in oncology. Like, because you still get burned out. It's not like this is a sure proof way of never feeling stress in oncology. And every doctor, I think, has to discover this, whatever this is for them. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not all going to write songs for their patients, but we're having a, a major epidemic of burnout in medicine. Doctors are miserable. The suicide rates are high. Doctors hate being doctors. Patients hate their doctors. There's no relationship. It's broken, Light. It's broken. And for me, this worked. But I think it can work for every single doctor and every single patient when they put their minds and their hearts and their souls to it. Just discover what that thing is for them. It's not songwriting for everyone. It could be watching a two-minute comedy video together. Hey, what's your favorite Seinfeld bit? And you sit next to each other. It could be sitting next to someone and Googling, what's the top clinical trials for you? It could just be this shared creativity. Any type of shared creative act, I feel, will bring the connection to the forefront, the empathy to the forefront, and the symptoms of burnout will slowly dissipate. It's the opposite of what they tell you. Build a wall between you and the patient. Keep yourself separate from your patients emotionally. I say, no. Break down the wall. Go deeper. Get to know them as a family member. Treat Mm -hmm. them like your cousin. Share your life. Be vulnerable with them. And it will fuel you. You'll be fueled. Your soul, your, your energy will be fueled. Instead of draining the tanks, it's this process where the tanks are being refilled without you even knowing it. As a last case study, can you share Clara's experience? She was the person who was on chemo. Mm-hmm. I think that the longest that you've ever oh administered. It's like a year of chemo. And she had no insurance. She was undocumented. Yeah. What, what did you do? I love her. She is amazing. She came in. She, she's in the hospital with all these tumors up and down her spine. And it's called PNET, primitive neuroectodermal tumor, otherwise known as like Ewing sarcoma is another name for it. It's a thing that kids get, but she was older. She was like 
20. And she was like on the older side of it. So she couldn't go to children's hospital. We had to take care of her. And she came into my office after we got her out of the hospital. And she needed a year of chemo on this pediatric protocol. I worked with the top pediatric oncologist in the country to get her the best treatment. We had to like raise money for her. She, she had to get all this chemo basically donated through drug companies and she could pay a little. She was raising money through her family. She just paid what she could. And I got her free scans because we had to scan her every three months through this year to see if it was working. And it was working. I said to the radiologist, I send you 50 scans a week. You got to do this for free for Clara or I'll go down the street. <laughs> I had to put an old, <laughs> I'll go down the street to San Diego, blah, blah, radiology. So they did me a favor and they did her scans for free. We got the chemo donated and she went into a complete, complete remission. And I have good news about her. She wanted to have babies after she mm. got into her remission and she was able to. We weren't sure if she could. She's got two healthy kids right now. She's still, she's still battling. And she brought me this little angel, this little statuette. And it's this little cute, it has the little wings. And she brought it to me and she said, you're my angel. And it's the, again, that and Manny's, Manny's little award. That's my Nobel Prize. That little statue from Clara, the little angel statue, that is my Nobel Prize. I keep a drawer full of little notes, thank you notes. You know, whenever I feel bad or whatever, I open that drawer. That's my drawer of Nobel Prizes. And I have her statue right over there. Is your dad still around? Yeah. He ended his career recently. He stopped practicing for a while, and then he went back, and he was the physician for a prison. Huh. He ended his career as a prison doc. I said, why did you choose that? He said, I wanted to end my career doing something that would make a difference for people who could really use it. And he said, what I learned from doing that is what I wasn't treating prisoners. I was treating patients. Hmm. And he said, I never treated anyone like a prisoner. And I thought that was just a beautiful thing. And he ended his career as a prison physician, and now he's retired. And I dedicate a large part of this book to him because he showed me that it was possible to combine art and healing. He must have been so proud when that Today Show special came out, <laughs> just to hear all these stories. He was proud. You know, part of me, and I still tell him this to this day, I said, what if you had just, after art school, if you had just stayed an artist, what would what have been different? You know, and my life probably would have been a lot different. I don't know exactly how, but as a physician, he provided a very good life, but I wonder what his life would have been like if he was an artist only. Mm. And I also think, what would my life have been like if I was just an artist of some kind? But that's not the path I chose. So now I try to combine the two. I try to combine the two. 
And this book is that story in many ways, and how my patients have imparted me with such lessons about the importance of empathy and connection and compassion. And I still think that that message will be my my biggest message, my legacy in medicine will be the messages in this book that to love one another beyond the walls of medicine, to love one another as brother and sister is really what it's all about. And to bring a little more love and a little less fear to every experience we have, especially in, in medicine and in oncology. And I say love is listening, observing, verbalizing, and empathizing. And fear is forcing, escaping, attacking, and reacting. And at every moment, you can, you can look at that formula and say, am I on the love half of that equation, the top half, or am I on the bottom half? Am I listening from love to light, or am I forcing my own views? Am I observing light? Am I looking at his eyes, or am I escaping and just trying to go into drugs or alcohol and not listening to my body? Am I verbalizing from love, or am I attacking somebody with my, my hate? Am I empathizing? Am I in that person's shoes? Can I get myself in their shoes? Or am I simply just reacting to them and just reacting and trying to fix or change them? So at any moment, you can look at that equation. And I think that is the key. That is the key to this message. And that's what I think empathy is. Empathy is moving a little bit towards the top half of that equation. So let's say, obviously, if someone's in San Diego and they get a diagnosis, they need to come see you ASAP. But let's say someone is not anywhere near you and they get a diagnosis and they're listening to this. From all of your experience, what should should they do? Should they try to find someone like you in their area? Should they start listening to more music? Like, (laughs) what should they what should they do? It's a great question. Well. First of all, yeah, you got to find your own, you got to get your board certified medical oncologist, hematologist, make sure they're board certified. And you have to take a stand for yourself. You got to find someone and you can interview two or three. You got to find someone who you're connected with, who you trust, who is going to honor who you are. As the medical oncologist, I don't own the team. I'm the quarterback. Okay. (laughs) I'm Jalen Hurts. I'm an Eagles fan. I'm Jalen Hurts. <laughs> I'm an Alabama you... fan, so I, I yes, I'm I'm the quarterback, but the patient is the team owner. So you got to find a quarterback that you can communicate with that you love. But you can also do telemedicine with me. I don't have to be your oncologist, but I can also be I can be your distant telemedicine oncologist. I can be a cheerleader from afar. I can be part of your team. No matter where you are, I've consulted with people as far away as L.A. and New York just because telemedicine is, is totally legit now. Now, of course, you can't, if you need treatment, you've got to go in and be with your own office that's close to your home. And you need that team. You need that close by team. You need a hospital, God forbid, if you've got to go in. But you can also join what I have. It's called my Cancer Fight Club. It's called My Cancer Fight Club. It's a private Facebook group where we have regular meetings and we go through the little teachings in the book. We listen to music, whatever it is. 
you got to join the Cancer Fight Club. And that's that's easy to find on Facebook, but it's Facebook uh, slash Private Cancer Fight Club. But we'll link, it, su- we'll link it in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, that's a support group. But number one is if you don't feel a connection with your doctor team, you have the absolute right to say, hey, could I see one of your partners? Can I, you know, if they don't check their ego at the door, that's on them. You have to feel comfortable and you have to love yourself and don't blame yourself. You find someone who you completely bond with. That's the first step. Feel the connection because it's an important relationship, oncology patient and oncologist. There's got to be brother and sisterly love there. You also say when people are doing their own research, which obviously people do nowadays, to only stick to current studies and don't give too much weight to studies that are very old. Am I remembering that correctly from the book? Yeah, there's been there's been so many advances where a study 20 years ago may not have all of the new data and all of the new statistics baked in. So, you know, now we're doing immunotherapy, we're doing biologics, we're doing CAR T therapy, where we're, we're taking your own immune T cells, we're transducing a gene into them and training them how to go after cancer cells and lymphoma and leukemia cells where we couldn't do this 20, 30 years ago. What that means is do your own research, but talk about it. Talk about it. Google that with your doctor. Sit down and say, hey, can we Google some stuff? Because I'm confused about this. And if they say, I don't have time for that, we'll fire them and go get another oncologist that has time for you. Mm. Because you can't do oncology in five-minute visits. It's impossible. And, and also, I say, another thing that saved my soul in oncology was having a scribe. I don't bring in a computer. When we all went electronic medical records, everyone was bringing in computers into the room. And all of a sudden, this is you. You're not even looking at the patient. You're looking at your damn screen. Hi, Mrs. Johnson. It's pleasure. Good to see you today. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Johnson. I don't even look at you. I don't know that you're a man. So get the computer out of the room, look at your patient in the eye, observe their body language, speak from love and empathize. That's the key. And that's got to be the future. That's got to be the future. You can combine tech, big tech and big heart. That's a combination that's going to win. And Eastern and Western, you, you talk about that being Eastern a good thing. and Western, Eastern and Western. You use the t- best of the studies and the best of the human spirit. You got to bliss more as you're going through chemo. If you can imagine blissing more while you're in the chemo room, listening to your book, Bliss More, and your new book, if you could do that while you're getting chemo, if you can meditate and visualize the chemo or the biologics or the immunotherapy actually wiping out the cancer cells, then your Mm. body and mind have now become your biggest ally. Sure, we need the Western, we need the latest advances in immunotherapy and all of it. But what if your mind and body and compassion now combine and you do even better? The studies are really coming to date on this. They're really showing this now, like where you get the same treatment, two people, same exact treatment, one delivered with beautiful, authentic compassion, just Mm -hmm. one delivered, just very 
wrote no compassion the people with delivered with compassion actually do better there's this cool book compassion nomics i i read it and it's like maybe maybe 20 years ago i was actually onto something but the studies are now showing that 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 compassion and empathy matter in the actual doctor patient outcome the relationship matters and that's cool i love seeing that it's not just a big waste of time it's not it helps how do you define success these days obviously you're not doing any of this for money but what is your measure of success at the end of your days when you look back at your life how will you assess that number of songs written for patients <laughs> uh I would say, how many times did I did I go to someone's house and play the song and and were they moved mm. to tears? And being a loving husband and and having my children love me that's that's pretty much it. If I have and to have great friendships like with you, success to me that's it. But in terms of uh, the medical stuff. The biggest thing I could ever do in medicine is just keep doing these songs, keep going to the homes. That's it. I mean, it doesn't get any better. The muse is there. The muse, they're, they're, they're not going anywhere. Unfortunately, I have more patience. I don't know what to do with. But if the song makes them feel 1% better than they were before I walked in that front door, that's success to me. Beautiful. Well, look, man, I want to wrap this up by looping back around to the early days with the cassette recorder and Steve Martin. <laughs> <laughs> and when I remember Steve Martin, because I grew up in the 70s as well, you know, I remember The Jerk. That was a very <laughs> funny movie. Yes. But overall, I feel like his aim was to bring joy to people who were, who were joyless or who, who were taking themselves too seriously. And... I think with everything that you went through growing up, that being your outlet to bring yourself joy kind of taught you the power of, of that gesture, of the gesture of a banjo or a guitar or whatever that instrument is to bring joy to the life of people who are struggling or who are joyless. So I just want to acknowledge you for having the guts, man, having the balls to bring that guitar out. <laughs> that first time and start strumming something. And I know initially it started with you just playing a, their favorite song, but then evolving that into making up a song and, and that becoming your thing and overcoming whatever shame or you may have felt doing that in the eyes of your colleagues and really owning it and stepping into that fully and then becoming known for that. And so mm. you, you're now blazing the path. And I love that you know, when Joseph Campbell says, if you, if you can see your path, then it's not your path. And you have to get the machete and go into the brush, you know, on your own and start whacking away. And that's what you've done. And I think this episode is going to inspire a lot of people to see how they can combine their passion with their purpose. And I love the fact that those two things for you are so diametrically opposed in the conventional sense. And you somehow, some way found, found a way to bring those two things together. And, and I feel like because you could do it in this, in this environment, anybody can do it in any environment. So I am so happy your book is out there and you're out there 
singing and sharing your story. And I hope that if anybody does unfortunately get diagnosed with cancer, I hope they can get in contact with you. Obviously, we'll put all of your links in the show notes and that you guys will form a wonderful team quarterback relationship That's right. <laughs> to their he- on their healing journey. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Light. And I love you. Love you too, brother. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Steven. You can get more information about Dr. Steven's work at drsteven.com. Again, his book is called Love is the Strongest Medicine, and you can find it everywhere books are sold. Make sure you have some tissues handy when you're reading it, though, because you may need them. Also, to get the show notes and a transcript of our conversation, you can go to lightwatkins.com tunnel. While you're there, you will see that I also have a new book that just came out called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. It's a book of my own personal stories and classic stories that you may have heard before. They're all meant to provide you with doses of inspiration. So if you love this podcast, if you follow me on social media or subscribe to my daily doses of inspiration email, you will absolutely love knowing where to look and you can find it everywhere books are sold as well. And if you already have the book, please, please make sure to leave a rating or review on Amazon so we can help to spread the word about this treasure trove of inspiration that is now available to us all. In the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with another story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.